Luciferian's Lightbringer presents The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire The Bale That Was Promised Livestream With special guest, Crow Food's Daughter I am very happy to have as my special guest, Crow Food's daughter, who goes by Amanda, who's one of my very oldest forum friends, and I'll give you the quick story again. Basically, about three years ago when I was starting to write uh, crazy drafts of mythical astronomy, I made friends with uh, Crow Food's daughter on the westeros.org forums, and a lot of you guys, at least a few guys, might have been around back then, and we had a good Skype session. Amanda was actually the first person to turn me on to the mermaid symbolism. She was the one who pointed out that, well, a uh, meteor that falls into the ocean, if it's a moon goddess, that can be seen as a mermaid. And that is indeed what Martin is doing with uh, Elenai. We were talking about Elenai and uh, the Stormland, not the Stormlands, but also the Iron Islands mythology. So say hi to everyone, Amanda. Hi, everyone. Um, like Ellen Mel said, my name is Amanda. I go by Crow Food's daughter in the forums. And I did just start a YouTube channel. It's called The Disputed Lands. So make sure you check that out. And um, you can also find me on Twitter at crowfood underscore SD. So. Yeah, I know a lot of you guys are uh, Twitter family by now. Definitely, if you're not following Crow Food's daughter, you should. We, uh, boy, the last five days have been insane on Twitter, have they not? They have, unfortunately. <laughs> I've, I've been kind of um, out of the, the Twitter um, scene for a little bit. I've been trying to work on that um, Greg King and Garth video. So um, I've just been peeping my head in every now and then, and it looks like it's some really good discussion. It's gone in a lot of different directions. Uh, yeah, a fertile discussion indeed, says Raven Salix, AKA Ravenous Reader. Yes, very fertile. Lots of fertilizer, lots of, uh, lots of poo humor, what can we say? In any case, if you're not on Twitter, you're missing out on something. I'm not sure how, what exactly it is, but you're missing out on something, so. Hey, we got a little super chat. Hello from Searing Abyss. Hey, guys, good to see you both. Happy to be able to catch the live feed. Thanks, Searing Abyss, one of my patron supporters. So just real quick, um, give everybody, uh, tell everyone about your YouTube channel, where they can find it, what the name is. Say it a couple times so they remember. Okay, so um, my YouTube channel is called The Disputed Lands. Right now, um, I just have one video up. It is about the Black Oily Stone and Shade of the Evening. And it's based off of a, a pretty popular essay that I did on Reddit uh, not terribly long ago. Um, it did receive a nomination for the uh, 2017 Best of Awards. Um, didn't win, but it, I'm really happy just to get the nomination. Um, and yeah, you can find me on Twitter, crowfood underscore SD. And um, I'm on Reddit sometimes. Why don't you actually go ahead and give like the uh, little elevator summary of your of your new video? Because it's really cool. And I think my, it's definitely right up the alley of all of the mythical astronomers out there. Okay, sure. So um, I'm sure that everybody is aware of the similarity between the werewoods and the um, shade of the evening trees that are found in Esos. So um, the author has done a really good job of both showing the um, comparisons and contrasting attributes of both trees. Um, one has red tree, uh, red leaves with white bark, and one has black bark with blue leaves. 
but there's so many similarities between the two trees. And we also noticed that there's a few um, different hints that there was a children of the forest presence in Esos a long time ago. And we don't see werewoods in Esos. So if we do have a magical tree that does provide visions, that does extend life, um, and we are seeing some of the similarities between those two trees, you can come to the conclusion that the two trees might actually be uh, related to each other in a certain way. So um, anyway, the, the video goes into um, detail about some of the interesting geography of Esos. And also um, we kind of speculate on the black oily stone because we all know that the werewoods petrify. It's you know, really easy to comprehend. They don't rot, they just turn to stone. So the shade of the evening tree, it pretty possible it could also turn to stone if the two are related. Yeah, that was and that was that was actually my favorite idea, I think, in the whole thing was the idea that well if, if white weirwood turns into pale stone, what what is what's gonna happen to a shade of the evening tree? You know, it, it's obviously some sort of inverted parallel to the weirwoods. So you could definitely it would be reasonable to speculate that it might petrify in the same way that a weirwood did. And if it did, you'd get black stone. And then the last part of that was uh, that the shade of the evening drink was actually oily. Is that how it's described? Yes, actually, um, when Victoria drinks it, he calls it oily. He calls it, it was thick and oily drink. It was so, um, so yeah, it's, it's an oily substance. It um, provides vision. And if you look at it from the sense of um, what Euron is doing, Euron, right now is drinking shade of the evening. And he sits on, you know, he's he's right now on the, the sea stone chair. He um, actually sits on a black oily stone chair. Um, also, the author did a lot of really good um, different things with symbolism with the shade of the evening tree. Um, there, There's a scene with Aria where she sees an uprooted tree and she describes it as the reaching arms of a great kraken. Um, you know, there's just lots of different things. Uh, also, the when Danny sees the black bark sh um, shade of the evening trees over at the House of the Undying, she talks about how it drinks the morning sun. And also the um, the Dothraki, they also talk about how the um, shade of the evening substance is called drinking shadow. So everybody knows that a shy by the shadow is um, described as drinking the morning sun or drinking the light. And so you, you kind of see a, some um, similarities between the way that the black bark trees are described and also the way that a shy is described. So it just kind of goes into um, some really interesting detail about the um, geography of Esos itself. And it's, it's, probably worth a, a watch if you get the opportunity. Yeah, it's it's really, really fun stuff. And um, if I really, uh, really love that one quote where the tree, the uprooted trees racing towards them like the arms of a kraken. Because uh, we had already started to pick up a few months ago on the idea that uh, the, the arms of the kraken might be something like an inverted tree root system, that the, the roots in the Kraken arms look similar. And there's a lot of ideas about the Weirwoods pulling down the moon or Azorahai using Weirwood magic to do evil stuff, uh, sacrifice this and this and whatnot. So the idea of these arms of the Kraken that are grasping and reaching being like the roots was something we were already playing around with. And then we found that quote 
but your theory sort of takes that uh, that connection and builds on it a little more in a way that I had not thought of. So it's really interesting. And uh, yeah, all you guys definitely want to check that out. What do you think of this, Amanda? I just n thought of this um, a while ago, and it's it's always niggled at me. So if if the black trees are the evening associated trees, doesn't that make the weirwoods morning associated? It, it's possible. It's definitely possible. There is definitely some yin and yang contrasting going on with those two trees. Um, you know, when Danny drinks the shade of the evening tree, she describes it as um, fingers of fire coiling through her heart. And when Bran drink, um, ingests his weirwood paste, he describes it as tasting like new fallen snow. So you, you do get kind of an ice and fire um, type of a duality with the two trees. And there's a there's a really interesting quote in the House of the Undying. They ask Danny, or they tell Danny, you know, drink from the cup of ice, drink from the cup of fire. And so, you know, it's possible that, you know, there might be some, you know, um, night and dawn, uh, fire and ice type of symbolism with the two trees. So, you know, it's, it's definitely a possibility. I was definitely thinking of like how dawn is made from a pale stone quote unquote, and the tower is called the pale stone sword. And then you've got weirwoods turning to pale stone. And I've actually like constructed some tin foil about how dawn might be some sort of tree sword and the pale stone, you know, maybe it's made from a meteorite, but when you forge, uh, when you forge metal, you need to add things like ash and uh, other sorts of um, carbon. And so mm -hmm. you could use, uh, you know, burnt tree ash. Bone ash is actually one of the most common uses uh, or sources of carbon for forging steel. So you could, you, since the weirwoods are pale as bone, you know, you, like I said, you could build some tinfoil with that. And of course, there's lots of tree swords in mythology. And there's some interesting scenes where weirwoods are frozen and then they grow icy teeth. And of course, the wolves, when they, uh, when you're inside of a wolf POV, they call all the swords and spears teeth and claws. So you, you have this idea of a frozen tree giving you icy swords essentially growing off the tree. I'm gonna get into that uh, in a future episode. I've got a little note file of, of that stuff. But yeah, so I, I've always thought, you know, maybe the, you know, obviously the weirwoods are, are, I mean, they're macabre and they're sinister, but at the same time, like they're, they're fond and familiar to all of us. So I think if we had to pick one tree that would be associated with somehow bringing the, the morning and the end to the long night, we'd pick the weirwoods, so. Anyways, uh, okay, so I've got, uh, let me just say real quick, hi to everybody in the chat. We've got Joe Magician trying to come on to me as usual. Hey, Joe. We've got uh, Ravenous Reader, like I said, Bernie the Burnt, Lauren's Corner House Thompson, all sorts of familiar friends. I saw San Rixian, Misty. I think Rusted Revolver is, so I've got two of my patrons that said they'd They'd be in and out. One of them's moving, and one of them has a grandfather's birthday party. I think Rusted Revolver has the grandfather who has a birthday party. So shout out to Rusted Revolver's grandfather. And if I'm wrong, straighten me out, and I'll give somebody else a shout out. Uh, but yeah, there you go. And there's my cowboy's fiance with a super chat. So Bale infiltrating the Stark blood, uh, Prince hiding, and the singers. How does it all tie in with the whole John Danny part of the story? Well, um, the whole th I'm going to get into this in my next Bale the Bard episode, but basically this whole idea of the stolen other baby is what defines House Stark. 
This is like the key thing that defines their magical heritage. So understanding this connection to the others helps us understand all of the Stark identity. And John, uh, as the quote, song of ice and fire, who's sort of blending and unifying ice and fire, you know, that his heritage is, is a direct legacy of that blood of the other connection. And actually I've got some really good questions that were sent in that we're gonna expand on that topic exactly. So we'll come back to that in a second. Hey, it's Duran Durandon, shoveling leaves, but he's still listening. Listen to the rustling of the leaves. That's the old gods, Duran. <laughs> and we've got Bernie asking for another Joe and LML Halloween live stream. Yeah, we'll definitely do that. Maybe we'll get an April Fool's one going or something too. I've actually got an idea for a good April Fool's one. All right, so let's check out these questions here. So Emilio Camacho Arise from YouTube, he's got a couple good ones. This is the comment of the year right here. So John and the others are brothers from another mother. Yes, they are. <laughs> I totally missed that one. I'm pretty embarrassed actually that I didn't make that a section title. I will probably reuse that, but indeed they are brothers from another mother. And I'm gonna talk about Edric Dane in the next episode and he's John's milk brother. And the whole idea of a milk brother kind of sounds like the brotherhood of the others who have milk white skin, if you ask me, so. Then we have, uh, Emilio says, we have collected all the artifacts to finally summon our Dark Lord and Savior LML back into this plane of existence. Apparently, I didn't realize it had been like two months since I put out a YouTube video, so they were all like, kind of wondering where I was. Then I put out the second video and he said, two videos in one week, resurrecting our Dark Lord LML. I did a tabletop RPG campaign with some friends has greatly paid off our efforts. So yes, you can all thank Emilio for summoning me back to YouTube. That was on him. And then Meridian Mormont says, LML's back, nearly died laughing at the music. So many Python memories, looking forward to listening to the next one. So I picked, uh, picked this comment out of a whole bunch that were similar. Everybody's geeking out on the music, of course. Uh, somebody's, Helen O'Grady says, Ned, uh, N plus A equals J, April Fool's stream. No, I don't think I could maintain a good humor doing that. I would just, that would just turn into me being angry. That's, that's a good joke though. And I know Amanda agrees with me on that. Uh, I definitely agree on that. Yeah. yeah, so in any case, everybody got a kick out of the Python music. Uh, I've been wanting to do that since I started the podcast. And, um, you know, ignorant me, uh, when I first started out, I was like, so can you just use music or do you have to pay for it? And yes, you have to pay for it. So uh, I didn't do it right away, uh, but I did spring for it. And I think I've, it's well worth it. <laughs> All right, so now let's get to some actual questions here. Melanie Patrick says, glad to see you adding to your already amazing compilation of quality content. Thanks, Melanie. You can't rush perfection. Yeah, we all, I think we've all learned that lesson, right? <laughs> I hope those who find your content continue to support you and your Patreon community continues to grow. Thanks for saying that, Melanie, so I don't have to. Of course, I just said it, so I guess that still counts. But yeah, if you want to support, check out the Patreon tab at luciformeanslightbringer.com. So then Melanie says she cracked up to the new music. Awesome yet silly, of course. And then also, are those icy burning black blood cells wandering through the background art? Yes, something like that. I was trying to show blood cells that used to be red and warm that were like sort of freezing. So they've still got a little bit of red in the inside. Uh, yeah, lots of symbolism in that. Um, okay, so Thunderclap says, would the son of night's king be the prince of darkness? And that kind of makes sense. But then Ruth C kind of hit it out of the park here. She says, would he be the black hole sun? Think about it for a second. 
Night's King is a black hole. Dark Solar King, son of the black hole. Black hole son. There it is. Very nice, Ruth. And then, okay, so Amanda, here we go. This is my, uh, this is my top patron. Bronze Steris of the Lily White Scales and Bronze Horns, Wingbones, and Spinal Crest. This guy is totally cerebral. He, he, he immediately, he threw down on my patron and then immediately started throwing like really cerebral stuff at me. Love this guy. So check this out. He says, this was incredible, even by your lofty standards. Thank you so much. Here are some things I've been wondering about. Azor High himself, rather than his child, became the Knight's King. Who do you think Azor High's child with Nissa Nissa might have been? The rescuer of Azor High's child with Knight's Queen. I definitely think that's possible. Um, so just just to back up what we're talking about is, like it's pretty obvious Azor High had a kid with Nissa Nissa because so much of the Lightbringer myth is about procreation. So the question is, you know, he must have had that kid with her obviously before she died, unless it was some sort of freaky zombie thing. But I, had, I tend to think it was a real person, normal procreation. So somewhere out there running around is a child of Azor High and Nissa Nissa. And then Azor High turns into Night's King or in the scenario that he's the one that turns into Night's King, you know, he's got this Night's King baby and then someone comes and rescues the baby. Who's that? Well, it very well might be the child of Nissa Nissa. I think that's a real strong possibility. Um, but the thing is that so many of the rescuer figures are also the rescued as well. And that's something I'm gonna show in the next episode. But it's, it's more of the same thing where like, you know, Rhaegar is a dark solar king with two wives, and then his son John also is a dark solar king with two wives. And if he had a kid, they'd also be a solar king and they'd somehow have two girlfriends. So it just sort of goes on and on and on. What do you think, Amanda, about the whole idea of Nissa Nissa's child? Is Could that be the rescuer or what do you think? Is that like House Dane or? I mean, it definitely could be the rescuer. Um, you know, I, I tend to think that a lot of the um, narrative uh, during the long night had to do with that um that basically that that kinslaying or that family uh relationship and I, I really feel that it's quite possible that um it's maybe a brotherly figure might have actually um saved that child possibly um you know to, to be the the stark progenitor um you know, that's that's kind of where I'm looking at at the moment is really that that familial relationship and possibly um, a, a brother versus brother type of a, a thing that I'm seeing at the moment. Yeah, um, and Amanda's as I uh, as I tipped off in in the last episode, Amanda was the source of a lot of the really good brother brother mythology, the Balin and Balan story, and uh, the Danae story. So. Uh, once again, yeah, thanks, Amanda, for helping me pull that section together. That was way better than it would have been on my own. But I definitely think the brother-brother thing is a big deal because we're told Brandon the Breaker was the brother of the Night's King. So if I'm right about Night's King being the big bad of the Long Night and living during the Long Night, then that makes Brandon the Breaker, he's either the last hero or he's rescuing the baby who then grows up and becomes the last hero somehow. Um, so think about this, all right? John, Rhaegar isn't uh, Ned's brother. However, Ned was rescuing his nephew because Leanna was his sister. So if Brandon the Breaker is the one stealing Knight's King's son, he's basically stealing his nephew, right? Yeah, and, and that configuration. Um, right. But, you know, there's there's obviously a few other configurations. You know, um, Ned acts as a rescuer for Theon as well. You know both a rescuer and 
almost like a jailer. But, um, you know, he, he acts as that as well. And his relationship with Theon is, is more of um, an outside figure coming in and um, taking on the role of a, of a father for him. Um, you know, there's, there's a couple possibilities, but the um, Ned and John one is definitely a, a definitely a good option, obviously with the nephew and the, the uncle. And then you've also got uh, Edric Storm, who I'm going to talk about, who's Stannis's nephew, and Stannis is the Night's King figure, whom Edric has basically rescued and saved from. Uh, but there's another sort of uncle-son relationship there. So, yeah, it's I'm 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 very curious about that. I also think that. When somebody becomes someone's squire, uh, that sort of symbolizes either like a father-son or a nephew-uncle uh, uh, thing. Like, for example, Edric Dane squires for Beric, Theon squires for Ned, and then John squires for the Lord Commander. And the Lord Commander even gives him his family sword, which makes John sort of an honorary son of the Lord Commander, which is perfect for the stolen Knight's King baby. So. Yeah, there's, I definitely think that's a real strong possibility. Um, and I also would, and I'm going to get into the House Dane a lot in the next episode. In fact, the next episode is going to be like Starks and Danes coming at you 100 miles an hour, like everything you've ever wanted to talk about. It's going to be fun. But I do think that the Danes would descend from the offspring of Nissa Nissa or the Amethyst Empress, who may or may not be the same person. Um, and I do think they come from the East. So I would look at, at the Danes as the Azor High blood that didn't get frozen and that didn't get passed through a Night's Queen. So I got a couple super chats here. Searing Abyss hit me up once again. He says, Wild Thought, what if the two children were the Bloodstone Emperor and the Amethyst Empress? Well, um, the Bloodstone Emperor and the Amethyst Empress are presented to us uh, as the couple that existed you know, right when the Long Night went down. And the Amethyst Empress was usurped and, and killed just like Nissa Nissa was. So I don't know if they would be, if they could be the children. They really would seem like the originals, if anything. Um, but it's all, it's all repeating cycles. So, you know, it's really hard to say. The, the intriguing thing about the Amethyst Empress is, is the connection to the Danes. The Amethyst Empress, if that's the same vision that Danny saw with the gemstone uh, kingly ghost, you know, the Amethyst Empress would have silver hair and purple eyes. Would look like a Valerian, uh, a Valerian. I added extra V in there. So we'll have to see about that. Uh, we've got, oh boy, they're stacking up. Everyone's spreading the love today. Thanks, everybody. Steven Stark, one of my patrons, says he's in downtown Dallas making a vid about stuff near Con of Thrones. Oh, that's right. You mentioned that last week. That's really cool because I will be going to Con of Thrones. Amanda, are you going? I am. In fact, I Sweet. actually sat right next to um, Stephen Stark at the last Con of Thrones. Um, mm. Yeah, I actually, I, we actually sat right next to each other um, during the, uh, I think it was the podcast meet and greet. We sat right in the corner. So Cool. Yeah. Small, Small world. world. All right. So there you go, Stephen. Thanks a lot. I'll check out whatever you got to post when you are back with that recon. We've got Gray Area in the chat. Hey, Gray, she sent in a little super chat love. Uh, just because I fucking love you. Oh, thank you, Gray. So nice. I'm going to say that she loves both of us, too, because how can you not love Amanda? You said Valerians were Nazis. Do you think Rhaegar left Elia and his sons because he saw them as too weak to fulfill the prince that was promised prophecy? Oh, that's an interesting angle. Um, I mean, I don't really think about the Targaryens as Nazis, 
more like the Valerian empires with their with their slave pits and all that. But at the same time, the blood purity is the other big link to the Nazis, and that kind of kind of makes sense. I mean, it's basically implied that Rhaegar knows that he at least needs a third child. Um, but it, yeah, it could have been. He could have felt like you know he somehow didn't get it done. Like he thought he originally thought. Um, his first son, Aegon, was the prince that was promised, we're told. And then apparently he became unconvinced of that and realized he needed to have another kid. So that's absolutely possible. What do you think, Amanda? You know, um, I believe it was in one of the um, Danny's visions. She saw um, uh, Rhaegar and um, Ilya, and he's holding Aegon. And he, um, he was saying that uh, there, there must be one more. The dragon needs three heads. And so uh, we all know that Elia was, um, you know, Elia was not the most um, robust woman when it came to childbearing. She almost died with her um, two other children, and he knew that a third child would kill her. And so um, she, she barely survived the first two. And so I really feel that he just felt he needed that third um, head of the dragon, that third child. And so um, he's very big into prophecy. You know, it says, um, which is funny, uh, there's that saying, um, the, the maesters were awed at his um at his studi at being so studious, they said that Baylor the Blessed had been born again, which is um, kind of um, comparing Baylor the Blessed to uh, Rhaegar, which is kind of what you're doing in your in your last podcast. But um, oh yeah, that's a that's a total one that I missed there. That's that's a pretty yeah. nice tie-in. Yeah, um, and so anyway, he's, he was just really big in prophecy. He knew that he needed that third child, and he knew that he wasn't going to get it with his current wife. And I think that um, Leanna being um, with, with her stark blood, I think that that definitely had a, a huge play into um, what had happened at the turning of Harrenhal. I think that, you know, um, I think that there is a, a a website called Winterfell Hughes Kloss, and it describes um, the possibility that maybe he saw that Weirwood sigil that she was that she, that she was holding, and you know something probably just clicked, and he knew that he had to have her. You know that's so, really interesting. I never thought about that. Like the, you know, we all think about the Night of the Laughing Tree story as like, oh, Rhaegar was impressed. You know, she was a badass. Mm -hmm. Uh, and she, you know, she's protected the weak, so she's virtuous as well. But yeah, no, he might have looked at the Weirwood sigil, and I mean, Rhaegar seems like, you know, it's kind of like one of us. He likes symbolism and prophecy and analysis. I think he'd fit right in actually with the community. And uh, yeah, he might have seen that Weirwood sigil and was like, "Hello, wait a minute, Weirwood goddess. That's what I need. I need a Weirwood goddess." He's exactly. listened. He's listened to the Weirwood Goddess episode. He knows what's up. So uh, Joe Magician's in the chat, dropping some knowledge. Everybody's appreciating that. I just want to give Joe a quick shout out. Joe also has sort of gotten his YouTube channel going just recently, and I think most of you guys have probably already watched his video, which is about how to grow a Weirwood, and it's really creepy and dark, but also very plausible in the Joe Magician style. I also read the quotes for that one, so. You can enjoy my crinkly blood raven voice, which I'm a little bit proud of. It's worth checking out. So, Joe, uh, what is the name of your YouTube channel? I apologize. I can't remember if it's Joe Magician or if it's something else. So just drop it in the chat there, and I will say it out loud so everyone can check it out. Because Joe rocks. 
And also let's give San Rixian a shout out for drawing Joe Magician's very cool Weirwood Direwolf Comet sigil thing, which is pretty awesome. You've seen that, Amanda? I have. I love everything that San Rixian does. I, I think I retweet about half of everything that she makes. Um, and so, yeah, I was actually in the conversation when um, Joe Magician was actually describing some of the symbolism be behind his um, sigil. So it's very cool. Very, very cool. Okay, so it is, in fact, Joe Magician. And we've got links dropping in the chat there. Thank you, San Rixian. All right, so uh, moving along with the questions, uh, Bron Steris had a second half of that question. Let's see, he's asking, uh, do I have any thoughts about how the long night may have ended? It's like the hardest question. If the turning point was stealing the child, then why was that so important? Could the stolen rescued child have aged quickly and done something like Skin changed the wind to blow the dust particles out of the sun's path so as to return light and warmth to Planetos? Was there some simpler explanation? Actually, that's like probably the simplest explanation that you could come up with. I, I really struggle with that. It's really easy to figure out that meteor impacts can, can cloud the sky, but the way that that ends is it just sort of gradually fades away, and that's not very high fantasy of an ending. And so you're like, well, how do we get rid of clouds of smoke and debris? We need wind, right? I mean, that's the only thing I could think of is wind. So I don't know, you got any ideas for that, Amanda? Well, um, I think that we were talking in a, a fairly recent conversation regarding the um, symbolism behind the horn blowing. And if you notice the Titan of Bravos, he blows a horn both um, at dawn and when the sun sets. And there, we all know that the, there's a lot of symbolism behind a horn blowing and um, the fall of the long night, the, dr the drowning of the waters. And so, you know, with the symbolism behind the Titan of Bravos with both a horn blowing at sunset and when the, when the sun rises, it's quite possible that a similar type of magic might be at play with, with basically lifting that call. That's actually a really good point. The Titan of Bravos is uh, a subject that I've been sort of saving uh, because it's a lot of it is green seer symbolism. He's, he's a green statue and he's coming out of the sea. So without like sort of opening the whole under the sea uh, ravenous reader line of symbolism, I can't really fully get the joy of that scene. So I've been sort of shying away from it. And same with the horn stuff. I've talked about the horn in a couple of these live streams, but I haven't done the official horn episode. But you're right on the money there totally. Like the fact that he blows this just god-awful loud blast every sunrise and sunset. And of course, it's quintessential morning star you know, uh, symbolism where Venus is both the morning star and the even star. And so, yeah, it's, it seems like the horn, uh, which, and it, I noticed that George likes to use the phrase uh, winding the horn. A lot of times when people blow the horns, he's, he says they're winding the horn. So there's definitely an emphasis on wind there. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, um, you know, there's a, there was a very good thread, um, and I believe it what might have been by Avita on Westeros.org um, that really detailed how the green seers control not only the trees but also the wind. You know, with the trees rustling. Uh, there's a really great quote by o, um, Osha, and um, she Brand's asking her about the green seers, and she just tells him to listen, open your ears, and and his reply is, it's only the wind, 
And Osha replied to him, well, who do you think controls the wind, if not the gods? So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. then uh, Euron also, there's a lot of ties between the storm god and the old gods going on over there. And so I just scrolled ahead. Uh, Archmaester Emma, who is one of our uh, Twitter Twitter analysis buddies, uh, she says, random thought I had listening to Blood of the Other One, the Bale slash Gale in Galeon of Kai's name may also be a pun on Gale as in a strong stormy wind, referencing Baylor Breakwind again. And so, yes, we've actually got a whole bunch of wind references with our Baylor characters when you start looking around. That was a really nice one, Galeon, because I, I knew Galeon was, was in the mix simply because he sings until the you know until night falls and he's got the black beard and stuff but yeah that that makes sense why you change Baleon to Galeon is to get that gale reference in there and then of course Baylor Breakwind that's <laughs> that's kind of a funny way to get it go ahead yeah um okay so in, in uh, the essay that I did regarding Great King and Garth Greenhand which had a lot to do with that bale symbolism um I in my essay, I likened um, that Baal character to the storm god. And so um, there there are a lot of tie-ins to um, storm god um, symbolism and um, and also uh, the Baal character that, you know, ends up, you know, being kinslayed or killed by a family member. So it's, it's pretty interesting. Okay, and then there's another question that somebody gave me uh, that's right up your alley, too. I'll just go ahead and send it right to you. Ruth C. of the Black Hole Sun fame says, Biblically, uh, does this refer to Seth's line and Cain's line? Uh, Seth being the child of Abel, of course. Mm-hmm. So go ahead. I know you've got some thoughts on that, so just so go ahead and where's, Here, where's the question? I don't see it. Oh, Okay. Oh, it's it's uh, you'd okay, have to look so, on the actual YouTube page, but it's just asking about the sort of Cain and Abel idea because we we unpacked all this brother brother right. stuff. Okay. And I, I had like one so, line. Go ahead. So basically, um, when I had first discovered all this bail stuff, I was actually looking at the Great King. Is what I was looking at, um, and because the Great King, he has. You know, and the Ironborn themselves, the Ironborn culture, there is so much death and reaping symbolism. If you just look at the sigils, you got um, a dead guy, you have a bunch of nooses, you have um, uh, you have uh, a hydra-looking thing, which is an extremely poisonous mythological beast. You have um, scythes. You have literally these huge scythes. Um, all of this death and reaping symbolism, even the, the House Greyjoy's words are, we do not sow. They just reap. And the Lord, the, um, uh, Lord, Lord Greyjoy is actually called Lord Reaper of Pike as well. So when I was looking at um, that and when I discovered the Bale stuff, I was actually looking at the Great King. And I was looking at um, Grim Reaper. Um, just doing some Grim Reaper research. And what I found was there is a Celtic god named Ankhu, um, who is actually um, a Cain figure. In the Celtic tale, 
Cain um, is punished by God and he has to become the grim reaper, which is the grim harvester of souls. Okay. And so, yeah. And so um, when I was looking at that, um, I also noticed that Cain in a lot of Celtic folklore is also a leader of the wild hunt, um, as is, you know, in some versions, Odin and um, Harl, Harl, um, the huntsman, and a lot of different, um, you know, Odin's or Nunos-like characters. So when I was looking at Cain, I was, you know, really seeing a lot of um, similarities with some of the symbolism in the um, storyline. So, um, and I remember that Abel obviously is his brother, and then Mance is goes to Winterfell as Abel. So um, then I looked at the story of the Bale the Bard and you have the Kinsling. And then I looked at all of the Bales and you have um, Balon Greyjoy killed by his brother, Baylor Breakspear killed by his brother. You have um, Baylor the Baylor the Blessed, uh, lots of rumors in the world of ice and fire that he was killed by his uncle. You know, every single one of them, um, it follows this line of symbolism. The only one that doesn't is um, is Baylor Blacktide, but he's killed by Euron. And Euron is the kinslayer extraordinaire. He kills, like, what, three of his brothers? Yeah. And um, all of his other brothers like hate his guts and want to kill him. So it's the that's like if you're not going to be killed by a family member, the guy to kill you is going to be Euron. Um, and anyway, if you just look at it, there's just so many um, similarities to all of these Bale characters. And so um, I basically just kind of picked up on that through looking at Kane. So. Okay, so Wasser 30 has, um, so first of all, I misspoke. Seth is not Abel's son. He's the third child of Adam and Eve after Abel dies. And so um, that potentially is, you know, three children could be a three heads of the dragon uh, inspiration. And then uh, Wasser 30 is asking about the three heads of the dragon. Are they literal, meaning like are those going to be three people or what does it mean? It's one of those things that means probably a lot of things. And the... Number symbolism I'm famously like phobic of, and the threes are the absolute worst because there's threes all over the place and it's so easy to interpret. But um, the, the third child idea is interesting. Um, you know, because so far we've been talking about the child of Azor Ahai and Nissa Nissa and um, the child of Night's King as being male, but you know, there should be, should be some, some girl children in there somewhere. So. You have to wonder maybe the third child, one of them was female, or maybe the child of Azor Ahai and Nissa Nissa was female. Um, so, yeah, I definitely think there's room for a third child in there. Uh, what do you think about the three heads of the dragon, Amanda? So the current, like, like the possible, um, you know, in the prophecy, who, what symbolizes the three heads? Or you talking about from the long night type of a person? Well, I mean, it's just the general concept of three heads has the dragon. Like it's presented to mm-hmm. Danny as well, three riders for three dragons. But yeah, I mean, I mean, that's that's the most obvious, you know, assumption. You know, Danny has three dragons. Um, you know, the sigil of the Targaryens is a three-headed dragon, and that's because you know you had Aegon, Visenya, and Rhaenys. So, you know, that's the most obvious kind of assumption you you would make is three heads has the dragon. You need three dragon riders. Um, and so I, I think that that's, you know, a good possibility. Um, I don't think it necessarily has to be like that, um, but it's, it's definitely a, a pretty strong argument. What I think is interesting is 
Uh, the idea of interpreting dragon uh, slightly more loosely, like for example, Bran is not Valerian in any sense. However, all of his symbolism of the burning brand uh, and being a fiery green seer in the Weirwood Net, it's all fiery with Bran. Um, he does not have the cold, icy symbolism that Jon Snow has, for example. And Jon and Bran are very much like a brother-brother yin and yang couple in some ways. And uh, Bran is the fiery one. Uh, there, and then, of course, some people have the idea that maybe Bran's going to warg a dragon. So maybe three heads of the dragon will end up being Jon and Danny and Bran. Uh, I would not, love to see that. Yeah, and it could be three heads of the dragon in the sense of like the three people that are you know going to help overthrow the Long Night, as opposed to being dragon riders. So there's there's also a really cool tinfoil about how the blood of the dragon is created, which involves like sacrificing people to the dragon so that their spirit goes in the dragon, and then you have basically like the dragon, the dragon rider, and the dragon rider's ancestor spirit who's inside the dragon allowing the bond to function. And so that's like three minds creating this dragon rider, essentially. Um, that's one of my old friend, Mithras, uh, from the, you might remember Mithras. He was back I here. remember Mithras, yeah. yeah. Was, you can still find um, Mithras on Reddit um, every now and then. Oh yeah, Mithras Stoneborn, yeah, he pops in. Uh, Steph is hit me with a super chat just now, and she actually uh, she commented earlier to say that she really likes your video, Amanda. So, a little props oh, thank for you. you. Yeah, Steph is is cool. All right, so we got some more. Oh, somebody named Crowfood's daughter send in a comment here. Let's see. Yet what is dead may never die, but rises again harder and stronger. He reminded them. Balin has fallen. Balin, my brother, who honored the old way and paid the iron price. Balin the brave. Balin the blessed. Balin twice crowned, who, you, who won us back our freedoms and our God. So once again, just like comparing Rhaegar to Baylor the Blessed, we've got uh, Balin Greyjoy being compared to Baylor the Blessed in sort of a weird roundabout way, because obviously they're not similar at all personality-wise. So nice catch. Yeah, and uh, and Balon the Brave as well. So there's also a Balon uh, the Brave who was the Spring Prince. He was the next in line for the Iron Throne. Um, oh, that's and right. Yes. He, yes, he had a very. Um, and that's Balon. That's B. That's B A E L O N. So it's the Targaryen mm -hmm. way of spelling Balon, right? Yes, he had a very Robert Baratheon-esque um, death. He died um, after complaining of a side stitch while, hunt while he was hunting, and three days later he died. And it, there's some there's some heavy speculation that he might have actually been poisoned because we know I think it's widow's blood. It kind of causes those symptoms to happen, and eventually you die of being um, obstructed. So. Um, there's there's some heavy connotations that he was poisoned. He was next in line for the Iron Throne. His death caused the uh, the Council of 101. So uh, again, there's that that kinslaying kind of hint right over there. So you have um, Aaron talking about Balon, and he's he's calling him Balon the Bla the ugh, cannot talk. Um, Balon the Brave, Balon the Blessed. So he's comparing him to both Baylor the Blessed and Balon the Brave in those just that one line. That's so. nice. That's that's pretty efficient work. And then Balon twice crowned. Mm -hmm. Well, remember we heard about Balon Coldwind. So what if we take Balon twice crowned and drop the T and the W, and then you'd have Balon ice crowned. And that was Rusted Revolver's observation, which of course fits in right with the symbolism. So I have to think that maybe that's that one was intentional. 
Pretty nice, pretty nice. I'm glancing in the chat here. Um, guys, if I miss anything in the chat, I apologize. There is uh, there's a lot going on. <laughs> and I'm trying to listen to Amanda when she talks too. But uh, so if you have a question and uh, it's, it's, uh, you really want to get it answered, it's okay to repeat it one or two times. Don't caps lock me though, that's not cool. Uh, so let's see here. Um, okay, we did those. All right, so then uh, I'm not gonna take a stab at pronouncing this name in Cyrillic, but you can see it on the screen. I think that's Cyrillic alphabet. I probably, I'm probably wrong. I shouldn't even say it. it's not English. Let's just put it that way. And I can't read it. So it's probably either Greek or Russian. Uh, in any case, maybe Melisandre is looking for King's blood in the wrong place. Could King's blood truly be Knight's King's blood? And this is a really cool idea. He goes on to say, uh, Jon Snow facing Eddard Stark in his dream. Do you think it could actually happen? I think it could. Maybe there's a reason why the Lords of Winterfell are always entombed in the crypts. And so now we're getting into the whole idea of the Stark dead rising, which we've been talking about a lot lately. I talked about it with um, Joe Magician and uh, History of Westeros did an episode about it. I was just on uh, In Deep Geeks channel uh, with Robert. We talked about the crypts. So that idea is going around right now. So yeah, Eddard Stark's bones are notoriously not in the crypts and they're not in a sepulcher guarded by an iron sword if, if that is in fact some sort of ward. So yeah, is Eddard Stark gonna be turned into a white or an other? Probably not, but it's kind of hard to totally dismiss it. And John does have that dream of, of facing his father. So uh, what do you think about that? And, and specifically, Amanda, what do you think about this idea that the king's blood that we need to do some sort of magical sacrifice is actually Knight's King's blood? I mean, I think that that's a, a very good possibility. I do have a speculation that um, there might be some uh, misinterpretations of, you know, what is actually needed. And in the ancient times, the they always are talking in the world of ice and fire about the god kings, the god kings of it, the god kings of, of Lang. Um, and so in ancient times, the king was also considered a god. That's why um, people wear a crown. It's The crown is actually a symbol of um, almost like a halo. It's a symbol of their holy, um, their, their holiness or their holy blood. And so um, anyway, when Danny hatches dragons, she actually has um, not just king's blood, but she also has holy blood in... Um, uh, in that pyre, in the alchemical wedding that, that you um, have coined. It's definitely, there's definitely that holy blood in there. It's just kind of hidden. We don't notice that because we um, are more concerned and we hear about King's blood. But when we see what's happening in the Forsaken chapter and, and spoils, spoilers here, if you don't want to hear about the Forsaken chapter, just you know, plug your ears for a second. But in the Forsaken chapter, Euron seems to have um, some sort of arcane knowledge and he is gathering lots of priests and he is it seems that he's using them possibly as a sacrifice and he's talking about Aaron's blood and it being holy blood and it being very very useful so um Euron, he he's definitely got some knowledge we don't know where you know we're not totally sure where it came from but he seems to know what he's talking about and he seems to be um almost performing an, an alchemical type wedding, um, you know, with this upcoming battle with the Red One and Hightower, Hightower fleet. So um, 
I, I think that it's quite possible that Melisandre might actually have the wrong idea. And I think that it's very possible that um, she's looking for King's blood, but what she really needs is holy blood. That's pretty cool. I like that. And I definitely think uh, that it's interesting to compare Euron's attempt at blood magic versus Danny at the end of the Game of Thrones. Danny is like bedraggled and desperate and grief torn and kind of mad. And she just sort of keys in on her instinct. And, and does her magic ceremony. Euron has like been to Valyria and Ashai and God knows wherever else and Karth, and he acts like somebody who's confident and knows what he's doing, which is really a lot more terrifying. So uh, yeah, Absolutely. it's it's like, I have a, kind of have a feeling like whatever he's doing with all these holy people in uh, on the prows of the ships might only be the beginning of whatever he wants to do. And I also like the idea that he actually wants Daenerys to use her as a Nissa Nissa in some way. Like he's gonna take her dragon and use her blood to perform some sort of magic. Um, I think that's on the table. I mean, not that yeah. that'll actually happen obviously, but that might be his plan. Yeah, it, he definitely seems to be wanting a dragon or two, absolutely. And so uh, the, the gentleman's name who I could not pronounce has been translated by someone in the chat in the end of the wise. She says it's Evangelos Papas Costas, which is obviously Greek. So thank you very much for that. Give him his due credits. All right, uh, is Night King a skin changer too? So I think this is, the answer is yes in both the books and the show. And in fact, somebody put in a question about that and I uh, forget where it is, let me see. Basically, they're, at, they're saying that I could see this being the big reveal, uh, that Night's King is a blood of the dragon person. And you can really see the show walking you up to that. Like, he's looking at the dragon like, mm, that dragon looks nice. Think I'll spear me one. It's like, and I think the more you think about it, uh, it seems like that was the plan of luring Danny North and then not, uh, I'm sorry, the plan to lure Danny North was to like, you know, Trap the trap John, but not kill them on that island. And then as soon as Danny showed up with the dragons, he had that spear ready to go. So it really seems like he knew exactly what he's doing. And if, um, you know, what I think the show is doing is essentially is like taking the original Night King figure and making him a corporeal person. That might not be the same in the books, but I do think the Night King awareness still exists in the Weirwood Net. That's kind of my hunch about it. And so there is still a tangible connection from Night King to dragons. And I think the show is just gonna take that and run with it. So, I mean, yeah, you see Night King riding a dragon, it's kind of like, hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> I think that's a, a thing. Let's see here. And by the way, Amanda, if you happen to see anything in the chat that you wanna comment on, do you have the chat window up? I do, I do. I'm, okay. I'm kind of trying to, to catch that and then um, feel free to interrupt catch me everything. Is what oh, I'm no, saying. You're doing great. Okay. If you see if you see a particularly good one. Okay. Um, let's see here, or a funny one. That's always good too. Yes. Okay. So here's the one I was looking for. It's from Killarina from YouTube. Obviously, the books and the show have gone separate ways, but I could see this meaning Night King uh, being a blood of the dragon person as being the big reveal in season eight. It's why John is always having a staring contest with Night's King, and why Night's King marked Bran. It could also be why Benjen couldn't be completely turned. All of them are the same blood. So this gets back to the idea that the stark blood of the other is is uh, important somehow. So think about this. All right. I've got my green zombies theory. Everybody, I think most people are familiar with that. It's the idea that the original Night's Watch were zombies, like cold hands, or maybe like a better barracks, you know, a version of barrack, 
And, you know, John's going to be resurrected as some sort of zombie. We don't know if he'll be an ice zombie or a fire zombie or some weird combination. I mean, I'll be happy with either one. But what about this? What if it's not just the skin changer blood? You know, he's so John is like a great cocktail, right? He's got he's got green seer slash skin changer blood. He's got blood of the dragon. And if my theory is right, he's got the blood of the other. And so this you might need all three of those to, like, make the best zombie or to make somebody who can sort of just reconcile this whatever sin, you know, happened. Uh, but the, the blood of the other is sort of like the third component of that. And I'll turn this over to you, Amanda, in just a second. But it may, reminds me of how strong of Hall with their red, green, and blue sigil, mm -hmm. and of course the trident yes. having the red, green, and blue forks. So go ahead. Yeah, uh, well, and also I think that, um, it was at um, House Massey, I think that they have a really um, House Strong-like um, sigil with their um, little swirls that they have with the oh, green, yeah. the red, and the blue too. And they always talk about how it's a really ancient house. I really, really like that sigil. You know, we talk about sigils all the time. Um, but going back to the show, uh, one thing that I did notice, um, I don't talk about the show very much, but I do I do enjoy the show. Um, the, one of the things I noticed on the show is the actor that they used to portray the guy that was going to be, that was turned into the Night King. And he had a very Valerian-like look to him. And I always thought that that was a little bit weird. You always see these, um, you know, you always have this... Uh, image in your head of what those very first first men looked like and they weren't you know like um you know blonde and you know no uh, you know real thin hairless you know just i just you know imagine this big burly bearded dark hairy man you know and like northerners see, yeah yeah exactly mm -hmm. and instead this the actor that they chose uh had a I, I don't want to call it a, a Valerian look, but he was definitely a blonde, you know, looking Andal Valerian type, you know, look to him. And so I, I always thought that that was just kind of a little bit interesting, their choice for, for the actor. Yeah, totally. And then also the look of the others with their long flowing white hair. It's like, you know, plus there, um, there's also a pun on the blue blood. The others have blue blood, but of course, blue blood is a expression used for royalty, and how would the others be royalty? Well, if they were, you know, descended of dragon lords in some way, then that would do it. Uh, Video game Vision Quest asks me: Do either of you have any theories on how the magic of the faceless men ties in with Azor High, Night's King, and the Long Night? We talked about this a lot on Reddit recently. So I'm of the opinion, and I'm not thousand percent sure on this, but I'm of the opinion that the House of Black and White is basically all symbolism. They're, they've got some sort of thing going on, obviously, but I don't think the faceless men are like tied to the Long Night or the ancient Starks. I don't think they're doing green seer magic. I think that everything they're doing is just a symbolic parallel of green seer magic, just in the way that the Kingsguard are parallels to the others, but they actually don't really have a connection to the others. Now, I could be wrong about that because I don't understand entirely what the faceless men are doing um, and it's really weird. So there could be there could be something to that. Amanda, what are your thoughts? 
So um, I am of the school of thought or of the opinion that there possibly is some linkage to like it, like the old gods. Um, you know, first of all, you have that door uh, at the House of Black and White. It's half weirwood, half ebony. Um, take a look at my video. You you may be surprised at what ebony really is, but um, there's I know that it's very symbolic. But you know, why why are they uh, why are they entering a door that looks just like that? Just like like um, Bran enters that that big large face door when he enters that that uh, weirwood door that he enters that's called the black gate. So you have this white wood that's a black gate that he enters through in order to get to the you know in, in order to finish his quest to go to Bloodraven's cave. And then you have Danny in the house of black and white. She has to enter um, a door that looks like a face. And um, and when Arya is inside the House of Black and White, she sits on chairs that are both um, weirwood and ebony. So um, it's, there's a lot of really, um, you know, green seer heavy stuff going on there. And then, you know, I, you know, if you, um, I'm not sure if you've read the Ariane um, sample chapter, Ariane 2. Yeah. Uh, spoilers, so plug your ears if you don't want to no, hear. No, we're, we're all spoilers all here. We're all good. Okay. Okay, so um, when Ariane goes into that cave, she um, goes deep, deep down, and it sounds a lot like that, um, that sanctuary, that inner cloister that, um, where all the faces are located and the house of black and white when when Ariane goes deep deep down into that cave she is just amazed at all of these faces that are looking at her and there's not a really good description of the faces but what she says is this must be a cave of the children of the forest and um it just it reminds me quite a bit of how um, the that inner cloister is described over at the House of Black and White. Um, there's just so many different parallels, uh, you know, even with the skin changing itself, uh, where you're, you know, putting on a, a new skin and becoming somebody. I think that there is definitely something there. It's a definite possibility. Um, I don't, you know, have anything real solid to, to just throw out there right now, but I, I'm very suspicious. So I like the idea that if there is a tie to something ancient and something in Westeros, that it has to do with the Boltons. Like the Boltons used to be able to do faceless men flaying, but then sort of forgot how. And so now they just flay people for the heck of it to be intimidating. What do you think about that? I mean, that's a that's a that's definitely a possibility. Um, because uh, House Bolton and House Stark are said to be enemies going back to the Long Night. It's sort yes, of an odd detail to include. It's like telling us to think about House Bolton as having a place in the Long Night exactly. events, and I don't really hear anybody ever doing that. Exactly. Um, and you know what? I actually um, mentioned that in the discussion portion of my Grey King um, essay. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Balthazar Bolton. I don't, we talked about it a little, yeah. Conversation. Yeah, um, Balthazar Bolton, he is the guy that skins, ba uh, skins Bale the Bard. And it, his name is very, very interesting. If you look at all of the historical... Um, names for all of the uh, Boltons, they're all Ruse, 
Royce. You have like five Royces, Royce one, two, three, four, five. Yeah. Um, and then you also have a Robar. So you have all these like, um, and then Ramsey. So you have all these that are named R and sound like Ruse or Royce, Ramsey, Rogar. And then you have Balthazar Bolton. Right. And it actually goes back and ties into that um, story of Baal. If you look at the actual meaning of Balthazar, Balthazar is um, uh, taken from um there's a Balthazar in the Bible. Anyway, what it means is Baal is king or uh, Baal protect the king. So it, you can tell that when George was actually writing that story, what he was doing was he was just kind of give, giving just that a huge throughout hint about the Baal character. So now we want to know why is he doing that specifically with this Bolton here? What is he doing? Right, so, so you've got Baal slipping his seed into House Stark. Then eventually his son grows up and kills Baal, comes back to Winterfell with his head on a spike. His mom leaps out of the tower. And then shortly after, we're told that Baal was skinned by somebody else who wore his skin for a cloak. That turns out to be Balthazar Bolton, whose name means Baal protect the king. So it almost sounds like more cycle stuff where it's just like, it's exactly. like repeating. Exactly, and it's echoed in um, the death of Little Walter. When Big Walter comes in and they're like, oh, you know, Little Walter, Little Walter died, and Big Walter is just sitting there hanging out with blood like all over him, and it, you, you can tell it's pretty obvious that um, Big Walter might have had something, might have had something to do with it. And the first thing that I think is Ramsey says is, let me know who he is, and I'll skin him and wear him for a cloak. So it kind of goes back to that whole kinslaying thing. It's mm. just a real big hint that you know, Mister. Uh, uh, oh. Is it little? Because it goes all the way back to that tale of Bale the Bard. So. So okay, so that's cool. And somebody in the chat just a minute ago mentioned um, uh, was asking about the cloaks. And so we've, I, I hate on this in the essay, and we've actually expanded this on Twitter more recently. There's a lot of- There's a lot. Cloak stealing, armor stealing. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, so I would say that that Bail, now that we know that it's another Bail character who takes uh, the Bail the Bard's son and skin and wears it for a cloak. So, so let's think about this. So Bail's son, Lord Stark, he wars against a Bale character on both sides. He kills his father, who's a Bale character, and mm -hmm. then he's killed by a Bale character. So it's you can see the even though the cycle is repeating, it's actually kind of consistent. Um, so does that mean that? Oh no, I'm I'm, I'm going to start making wild tinfoil here. Let's let's put a cap on that. Okay, that's cool though. I'll have to come back to that. Um, and yes, Belshazzar. That's the Belthazar, Belshazzar. That's that's what your Blue Tiger's asking. He knows his Bible. Yes. That's the one. Yep. Cool. Uh, yes, and someone steals the Hound's helm. That's also true. I wonder mm -hmm. if that fits into it. I have to think about that. Because we've got, so we've got Baylor Blacktide's cloak. We've got the Sable cloak of, um, is it Jafer Flowers? Or no, Jeremy Riker, who's Jeremy killed Riker. by a white, mm -hmm. and then his cloak is taken um, yeah, and even Waymar Royce, um, when I think it was Will, he climbs down from the tree. He's he's not only talking about um, you know thinking about that sword, but he's also thinking about that cloak. But 
you know, before he can really do anything with that, he he's killed. But that you can see that thought process is there about taking it before he dies. And then I want it may also makes you wonder about the dragon glass and the horn of winter that was wrapped up inside a Night's Watch cloak that was buried almost like a dead body in the ground. Mm-hmm. That kind of uh, that's something I'm going to come back to. I think there's something there. Yeah, and there's there's other um, you know things there too. If you look at the tale of the Red Knight, which is part of that Sir Balin and Sir Balin um, that you you know we we've been talking about. Um, the Red Knight is a character that, um, as soon as the the Red Knight is um, challenged, if the challenger defeats the Red Knight, he is cursed to become the new one. And so you have to put on the armor and become that Red Knight. And that's why they they kill each other is because they aren't really aware of who, who the other person is. Right. And the really cool thing with the Boltons is they are the Red Kings. And there's a, a lot of different... Um, there's there's a lot of um, different things that kind of connect House Bolton with House Royce. If you just look at the names of the Royce one, two, three, four, um, they're the, called the Red Kings. And then um, one of the Royce sons goes into Renly's King Guards at Kingsguard, and he becomes the Red Knight. Robar the um, Red, yeah. Yes, yeah, he exactly. And then you have a Rogar, um, you have a Rogar Bolton. So there's there's a lot of interplay in between those, and I think that you were actually talking about like the cloaks, and then also Royce's armor and stuff like that. It's it's all very intertwining, very interconnected. Um, and anyway, so with the the tale of the Red Knight, um, one person is killed. You take off the armor and you put it on, and you become the, the, that person. And it's echoed in like the tale of Renly Baratheon, where um, you know one of the um, Hightower, or not the Hightower, one of the Tyrell um, sons, he puts on the armor and he becomes Renly. And, yeah, Garland, you know, he, yeah. Exactly. And he, and he also takes on some really good, you know, Azor Ahai, you know, symbolism going on there too. Um, but it, it's definitely a theme and it's echoed in the cloaks, obviously, that the cloaks are a big thing, it's a, a big hint. But it's also echoed in armor, helms, different things like that. Very good. And I have a feeling this is something I'm probably going to have to come back to as I continue to explore those uh, bail connections. And uh, my buddy Grin, Grin of Long Lake in the chat asking about Lady Rogare of Lys. And I was thinking of that, too, just listening to you talk. What was uh, I now I can't remember who she is, though. That's what was that one of Aegon? Yeah. Uh, um, no, she's actually the mother of um, Aegon. Um, she was the Aegon, wife the bad of, king. We're talking about, right? The unworthy. Yeah, yeah. She's the mother of Aegon the unworthy. Um, she was the um, wife of. Correct me if I'm wrong. Of Viserys, um, one of the Viserys, I think. I think that's somebody, right. Somebody in the chat, help me out there. I think that's right. Um, but uh, anyway. Yeah, um, because, um, yeah, Lady Rogar of Rist, that, that's of list, that's correct. So, um, anyway. And who's, and Aegon the Unworthy, I see him as a Garth, a gluttonous Garth character, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. And, you know, very fertile. Look at all those children he had, very lustful. Um, mm. Yeah, he's he is definitely a Garth-type figure. A confirmed, but, Viserys II from Joe Magician. Okay. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Yeah, he's, he's the son. So Viserys was... Um, 
uh, captured and he went, uh, he was in Isos for a while. And when he came back, he came back with a new bride. And, and I think they already had children by that time too, if I'm. But, yeah, well, yeah. I'll, I'll double check and follow up on that one. It seems like there might be something there, uh, mm -hmm. especially when you look at the Royces and all the Rogares. The Royce words are, we remember somebody uh, piped up. So you have to wonder what they remember. But it's the secret of the faceless men. Let's see, um, Nana the Wise. Uh, oh, I've been asked, um, let's see, there was a super chat a second ago. And the question is, why do the kings of winter tell John he doesn't belong in the crypts? Uh, so I think that, and I talked about this with Robert on Indie Geek. Um, if you notice, at, that really only happens at the beginning of John's arc. I think it's in Game of Thrones or maybe the second book, where like, you know, this this recurring dream that he has sort of goes further and further every time he has it. And it's only the first couple iterations where the Kings of Winter are telling him it's not his place, I, I think. Um, but he, the thing is that as the dream goes further in A Dance with Dragons, he talks about uh, not being afraid of the Kings of Winter and he knows that he has to go further. So I think that originally it was being used as a device to sort of divine John's bastardy and define him as the Stark that doesn't belong, that something's not right about him. But then as it goes on, it turns into more of like, well, there's some secret down here that John has to go to. And the, the idea that John's got to go to the deepest levels sort of indicates that his secret is not just the RLJ secret. It's something that has to do with the origins of House Stark and the oldest members of House Stark. And to me, that could only be the blood of the other theory that would explain that. I would love to see those, um, you know, the deepest levels of, of the crypts. That would be amazing. I hope that that happens. Oh, I'm being told I had missed one about the Dragonbinder horn. I sure did. Nana the Wise, one of my patrons. Two questions. One. Wearing another's armor equals wore his skin for a cloak as usurpation language. Yes, definitely, right? Yes, in fact, um, what when Waymar Royce is in the prologue, I love the prologue, so much symbolism. Um, but <laughs> You and Ravenous Reader. <laughs> yeah, oh yes, we, we definitely love that prologue. But um, what they, when they talk about the Sable Cloak, and the Sable Cloak is talked about a lot in that prologue, they call it his Six crowning. times. It's mentioned six times. There you times. go. There you go. See? And what they call, um, in the very beginning, that very introduction of that cloak symbolism, they call it his crowning glory. It's his crown. Okay? So he's taking his crown. He's, he's killing him and taking his crown. Basically. So he's taking his rights, his blood he's, rights, exactly. his inheritance. And exactly. that's the whole idea with Cain is that he killed mm -hmm. his brother. Essentially, it's like taking his inheritance. And there's also some really great Jacob and Esau stuff. Yeah, there's yeah. Some really, really great Jacob and Esau stuff. If you look at um, the tale of Who's Or Am I, which, um, you know, you guys... Sounds a lot like Azor Ahai. Um, he's the Sarnori hero um, back in the day. And a lot of people have drawn, and rightly so, they've drawn a lot of um, different parallels between Azor Ahai and Huzor Ami. So it's it's probably a pretty safe bet that they might be the same characters. Um, and if you look at the tale of Huzor Ami, and I'm sorry if you guys hear my dogs in the background, they're starting to bark, but- um, Where's your husband at? What's he doing? Come on. Was He's he's out of state, so oh. um, yeah. So if you need um, to take a couple minutes for your pups, um, you can absolutely do that. I, I, can, I actually uh, have a I have a babysitter here, but okay. um, so so she's with my kids and my dogs right now. All right, now. we can do with so. occasional barking. That's fine. We like it. Okay. 
Yeah. Um, but anyway, so if you look at the tale of Huzor Amai, he wore the pelt of the king of the hairy men. He wore like the cloak of the king of the hairy men, basically, right? That's right. So um, anyway, if you look at the tale of Jacob and Esau, and this goes back to that brotherly struggle that I, I've been talking about here and there. Um, if you look at the tale of Jacob and Esau, um, Esau was supposed to um, inherit. He was the eldest. He he was meant to inherit. He's, he's like... Um, the next in line for the throne, if you will. And um, anyway, the the mother doesn't want Esau to inherit. She wants Jacob to inherit. And um, the husband is, is very blind. He can't see. So what does she do? Um, she tries to make him look like um, Esau. Or feel, to feel like or Esau. feel, exactly. Right. So what she does is um, she makes him hairy is what she does. So um, she puts on sheep's um, wool on, on her son and he becomes a hairy man or, or what have you. And so he is able to usurp his brother because he goes for the anointing to ena enable him to inherit. And um, he is mistakenly anointed and given those rights and he steals those rights from his brother. So yeah. when Huzor Amai wears the pelt of the king of the hairy men. It's kind of like a, a hint towards that. Absolutely. And in case you didn't know, George knows his Bible very well. He was raised Catholic. There are a ton of Bible stories being used. Um, I think he just views it as another source of great stories and mythology to draw from like anything else. And uh, yeah, there's a, a lot of good stuff. I've obviously talked about the Garden of Eden and Lucifer and stuff like that, but um, there's some great brother-brother stories. And of course, a lot of the Bible stories are, you know, versions of other myths that exist in that area. You know, uh, all the myths get passed around and changed. So uh, second part of this question from Nana the Wise, and thanks, Amanda, for that. That's um, not one that I picked up on, but I sort of smacked myself on the forehead when you brought that up. I was like, oh, yeah, there's the cloak of the hairy man right there. And it's being used to usurp. So good comment there from Nana about the usurpation. And then second question Kraken summoning horn equals dragon binder horn. Uh, Kraken equals dragon, question mark. So I think that I'm kind of, I don't know. I don't think we're actually going to get Krakens coming out of the water, um, being summoned by the horn. I mean, it could happen. Maybe they'll appear in the middle of the sea battle, and, and some ships will just be pulled down, and it'll just be this creepy extra thing. I, I guess I could see that, but... Dragonbinder Horn's ultimate purpose, I don't think, is having to do with Krakens. I think that thing is actually the horn that might have the ability to summon meteor dragons and bind be a bind comet dragons. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna get into that in one of the next two episodes. So I don't want to spoil it too much, but that's what I think. What do you think about Dragonbinder? Okay, so um, there's obviously we we hear about that. Um, similar horn that can summon krakens and we know that um Euron, he has a horn not currently with him i don't know what's going on with the horn over in esos why he needs to take it over there obviously he you know really they think that he can find dragons with it steal a dragon steal the woman you know bring him home um but there's there's you know, there are some similarities to, you know, what we're hearing. Um, right now, they're saying that Krakens are stirring on the Arm of Dorne, and the Arm of Dorne is one of those places where it's heavily um, implied that there was a, 
um, meteor impact. You know, the arm of Dorn was broken during the long night. Um, and so I, I think it's a possibility. I definitely have some of my own ideas when it comes to the Krakens. Um, and so, like I said, check out my video if you want to take a look at that. Um, but I, I think that they might be somehow related. I don't know if they're actually the same thing, but it's, it's possibly a, a related type of a mag magic. Cool. Well, I'm all for all the horn tooting uh, that we can have. I, what do you think about this? Um, so we always see Dragonbinder blown by a proxy uh, who ends up, you know, getting toasted. Uh, but then in the dream that Aaron has of of uh, of uh, Euron, he's actually blowing the horn and summoning krakens and sphinxes and dragons. Do you think that we'll ultimately see somebody powerful like Daenerys or Euron be able to blow the horn themselves and live? Well, so the Shade of the Evening dreams are very, very, very symbolic. So um, like you see Danny um, in, in her visions, you know, one of her visions is a woman being ravaged by a bunch of midgets, you know, and we definitely know that that was just very symbolic and had more to do with Westeros and the Five Kings. And so I definitely do think that um, drag uh, Euron actually blowing that horn is probably more symbolic of just that horn being blown and him having the the um, ownership of that horn, so to speak. Because remember, you have to claim that horn. You have to claim that horn with blood, but somebody else can blow it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's possible that he can, you know, somehow gain that type of, of magic to be able to blow the horn himself. You know, it's possible. I think that, I tend to think that it's just more symbolic. Probably, uh, probably. I just wonder, like, so I've got the, you know, I've got the sort of quasi tinfoil theory that that there's a way to take, you know, that the horn is involved in summoning the comet or steering the comet into the moon or whatever. And I just wonder, like, it's already been blown a couple of times. Uh, so is is there like a, a, a level up way that you can blow it? Is there is it when somebody in particular blows it or does, is it maybe it's got to be blown at the right time? I don't know. I I still uh, there's a couple missing pieces in that theory there. So I just wonder, like somebody that has special blood, maybe they could blow it and not die. Uh, like Danny is kind of the one I'm thinking of ultimately, but we'll see. I, I do think Danny's going to be using glass candles at the least, so I, I see her do, doing more sorcerous things. Uh, I got a couple, uh, not super chats, but good questions here in the chats. Let's see here. Uh, Ravenous Reader is calling me out for saying uh, I'm all for all the horn tooting we could possibly have. I think there's some unicorn subtext going on, but we're not going to get into that. Uh, Suffice it to say, uh, like I said, you're, you're missing out if you're not on Twitter. Uh, let's see here. When Victarion blows the horn in Marine, how does Euron get the dragons to him? Yeah, so we don't know. Uh, some people think maybe Euron is hiding out somewhere secretly close by, or he's going to appear close by. Uh, maybe the dragons will just fly all the way back to the Iron Islands. We really don't know. I mean, I don't know. Do you have any ideas about that? No, it's just all just huge speculation on my part. You know, I honestly, I don't know if he's going to be able to um, 
you know, be successful in, in the endeavor that he's he's trying right now. Um, it's it honestly, it sounds like another poor Quentin, you know, to me, you know, where he's going on this big, um, you know, people woman hunt and dragon hunt. And it sounds like he's probably going to fail. And in, in my opinion, maybe maybe he'll bring some dragons and, and a beautiful uh, uh, Targaryen woman home. But I, I don't know. I don't think he's going to be successful. We'll have to see. Uh, Sanri, you're asking, uh, somebody was asking, is, is someone a warg? But who are, you, who are you talking about? Is who a warg? I'm looking in the chat here. I'm not seeing who you're talking about. Or maybe you're saying who can blow the horn and not die? I don't know. I, I tend to think like the horn is a fiery thing. It burns people. So the only person that could blow it and not die to me would be Danny, uh, because she can occasionally manifest you know, miraculous fire immunity, even though that's not an official, like, de facto Targaryen ability. All right, let's see, we've got a couple so, of, uh, oh, go ahead. I was gonna say, maybe it's somebody, maybe an undead person, because um, you know that saying, what is dead can never die. Um, oh, so right. Maybe, you know, maybe that's, maybe that has something to do with it. The corpse hornblower. Uh, there yes. is some symbolism for that. Yeah, that kind of makes <laughs> sense. Somebody left a nice comment about you, and I'm trying to scroll back and find it. Uh, but it amounted to uh, they love your Reddit posts and they are glad you made a channel. And I think I've seen a few comments like that. So I'll oh, take thank that you. as a collective sentiment from many people out there in the crowd. Yep. Show Amanda some love. Share the video. You know how it is. Uh, it's always hardest to get something going uh, once you sort of get a little critical mass of subscribers and it's easier or whatever. So when you can share somebody's video and they're just starting out, whether that's Joe Magician's cool video or Amanda's video, please do that. Yeah, and they're both and Joe really- Magician. I was gonna say, Joe Magician has a really good video too. I watched it and um, I definitely got a, quite a few take homes from, from that. So thank you, Joe. Yeah, he's sort of, you know, we've all been beating around the bush of like, well, there's obviously blood sacrifices and how do you open the weirwood's eyes and how do you give it a face and how do you make a weirwood? You know, we're told Bran eats a paste made from weirwood seeds, but we've never seen weirwood seeds. We've never seen anyone plant weirwoods with seeds. So we, we've heard of that happening, but we don't know that that's how they're, you know, created. So yeah, that's definitely check out that one there. All right, let's see. I got a couple more uh, to get through the people that sent in ahead of time. Buster Call, or Kali from YouTube says, I think the others don't bring the cold, but absorb all the heat. They're fireproof. It's a really simple observation, uh, and it's kind of semantics, you know, but it's interesting because the dragon glass, when it stabs the other, it's cold. So it's actually absorbed the cold. So maybe the others are absorbing the, the heat. That's absolutely, like, that's plausible. We've been shown that kind of thing going on. There's a lot about drinking the light and drinking souls and all that kind of stuff. So and yeah, maybe- burns like the cold. Exactly. So maybe the other's mechanism isn't projecting cold, but like absorbing all the heat and maybe even flipping it into like cold or something like that. So that's kind of a cool concept. I'll have to think about that the next time we see the others and get some more clues about how they work. Let's see here. Um, superhuman. Actually, it's a little more clever than that. Subharmon. There you go, from YouTube. He says, maybe the waking of dragons from stone and the dragon under Winterfell symbolism is also connected. So this is something I'm gonna get into in the next episode. Uh, but we've talked about 
before. Like, there's a lot of symbolism of a dragon under Winterfell. Bran, of course, sees uh, a fiery serpent when Winterfell is burning uh, through the eyes of his wolf. And then when they come out, uh, they say, oh, we made enough noise to wake a dragon. So there's the whole dragon hatching theory. But then in the world of ice and fire, they tell us about uh, maybe King Jaehaerys' dragon laid an egg, or uh, the, the people talk about rumors of maybe there's a dragon under Winterfell, and that's why the springs are hot. So there's a lot of different ideas about dragons under Winterfell. Um, and I think most people have keyed in on the fact that this is actually about John. John is the dragon under Winterfell. And as I mentioned in the last episode, it's really a great depiction of the dragon locked in ice idea, where John is the dragon who's under Winterfell. He's, un, he's in the crypts, or think about Robert saying, King's under the snow. You know, all the people are under the snow, King's under the snow. So I think that's what that's all talking about. But again, it's not just John, it's all of House Stark. If they descend from the blood of the other baby, they're all sort of frozen dragon lords, you know, dragons that are hidden in icy forms. So. We're going to talk about that a lot more. Do you have anything to add to that? Oh, I just agree completely, um, especially with John being the dragon under Winterfell. Um, I think that that's uh, huge symbolism there. Um, also with the um, Starks having some of that Valerian or Golden um, Great Empire of the Dawn symbolism as well. Uh, I think that, that that might actually be what, what they're hinting at with the great stone dragon that, you know, let um, and then uh, Chicken Lipstick is asking, do dragon eggs put out heat themselves? Um, well, Danny senses heat, but Jor does not uh, when they touch the eggs. So that seems to be slightly more of a, a, a magical thing, not, not a tangible thing. Let's see here. Uh, We've got, Amanda, we've gotten you uh, 20 new subscribers since we started the stream, someone's telling me. Oh, thank you. Good job, people. Hey, Good job. thank you. Let's see here. Um, I thought I saw another question about the same topic. There's a question by um, Jojo Lady Dane and from YouTube. Go for it. Uh, it says great stuff about Irish mythology with Baylor. There, in there, on a separate but related note, you know about the um, Dagda's harp, right? How he put the uh, Fomorians to sleep with it. Might be useful to think about it in context of the Bards, maybe. I was hoping you had a clue on that one. I didn't have time to look that up ahead of time. Um, you know, the, the Dagda, I think that um, in their most recent, no, maybe their second most recent um, video, um, I think that it was uh, Radio Westeros had talked about the Dagda and some um, a lot of similarities between the Dagda and Garth the Green um, as well. And so uh, if you look at my essay, again, uh, regarding the Great King and, and Garth the Green Hand, um, um, I kind of hint that the Garth the Green Hand might actually uh, play into this Bale character. So with the Dagda's harp um, being somehow similar to Garth the Green Hand and with also with that Bale character, I think that there might be a good possibility. I haven't looked too much into the Dagda. I definitely have heard of it, mostly um, due to Radio Westeros. So definitely check that video out. They have got a really 
um, great video about the um, different heroes and legends of the South. Oh, yeah. Um, they have yeah. two part, actually. They Real did the good. South and the North. Those were, yes. those were both really fun. Yes. And they did talk Real about good. the Dagda. And mm -hmm. uh, so I know that the Fomorians are uh, part of the inspiration for the others from Ideas of Ice and Fire's channel. Uh, and mm -hmm. so if there's a harp that puts the others to sleep, um, or the other, you know, parallels to sleep, then that certainly makes you think of Rhaegar's harp and all of the magical singing and barding and all that. And of course, that can easily be flipped around to where you could have a harp or an instrument that wakes up the others, you know, the horn that wakes the sleepers. So yeah, that seems like a, uh, a potent line of research. And it's adjoining the Baylor myth, uh, which we've already uh, discovered is being used. So I will check that out further, Lady Dane and uh, see if I can fit that in a future episode. Uh, so somebody, Amanda, Mary Reagan says, Amanda, I'm drawing your face in a shade of the evening tree because I am a chronic doodler. So make <laughs> sure like you say that. <laughs> yeah, make sure you share that on Twitter or somewhere, Mary, because uh, that sounds pretty good. It sounds like a San Rixian type of thing to do. Um, yeah, so Blue Tiger is talking about the Tuatha de Danan, the kind of like the others and kind of like the children of the forest. So I don't have all those different um, different races of the Irish folklore straight in my head. I'm a little murky on that. I've, I've read it up on some of it, so I can't really talk intelligently about it, but suffice it to say, we will be researching that further. And uh, I also can recommend, like I said, Ideas of Ice and Fire has a great video about the others and the children of the forest and the she and the Fomorians and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, Sheridan, yeah, San Rixine is also demanding the shade of the evening tree drawing with Amanda's face. <laughs> Let it happen. All right, so then uh, another question here from Bronze Steris, the Bronze Behemoth, who, uh, Amanda, did you know, Bronze Steris, the Bronze Behemoth, it is said that once he forged an entire life-size Valerian steel Cyvast set in a single night. I did hear that, actually, in, in a very recent podcast of yours. That is a very cool um, little, <clears throat> little uh, piece of information that I can use at uh, dinner parties now. There you go. Yes. Valerian steel chess sets, uh, Cyvast sets, you know they exist. So it's a, uh, you've completely convinced me that Night's King lived during the long night, but if that's the case, then shouldn't we just discard the notion that he was the 13th Lord Commander? Because I was sort of dancing around it and trying to say, well, here's how he could still be the 13th, you know, leader of a fighting force, but, but you know, et cetera, et cetera. So he's saying just discard it altogether rather than trying to make that notion fit with the rest of your theory. Night's King made the others, and the Night's Watch was presumably created to fight the others. So the very first Lord Commander would have been chosen only after the Night's King had become Night's King. That in turn means Night's King couldn't have been the 13th Lord Commander. If Night's King had been the 13th Lord Commander, then the first 12 Lord Commanders wouldn't have had anyone against whom to fight or guard, et cetera, et cetera. So the one, the one way that that's not the case is, Think about you just had an elite fighting force that existed before the Long Night. It could have been, you know, like I said, the Gemstone Emperor Royal House Guard. It could have been the first warriors of House Dane or Stark. It could have been the Sacred Order of the Green Men. It could have been any fighting force that mutated into the Night's Watch. And they could have had 12 commanders, and it could have been their commander that became Night's King. Uh, with then, like, sort of the rest of the the fighting force he betrayed then becoming the watch to stop Night's King. So there's a few ways that it could work out. Um, and I don't like to drop the myth entirely because the thing is the myths, the details in the myth are flag markers for the archetypal spinoffs. So even if Night's King wasn't the 13th Lord Commander, 
when we see another character who has Lord Commander and 13 symbolism like Stannis, then we know that's meant to be a call out to Night's King. So even the details that we think are like symbolic or metaphorical, we still have to talk about them because that's important for the patterns. However, the logic that he's applying here is all correct. Um, that's that's sort of what I was getting to in the prelude is that you know we're something about this myth doesn't work if Night's King is the creator of the others. I mean, there's basically there's conflicts with the timeline any way you slice it. So it's a matter of like choosing what makes more sense, I guess. Yeah, I agree. <clears throat> yeah, don't don't forget to hit the like button, guys. That does help. It's pretty easy to do. It's like just moving your mouse and then clicking on your mouse. Let's see here. Last line of Sen Rusted Revolver says, or he was the last line of seniority of the 12 plus one. When he killed his brothers one by one, he ended up as the 13th. So yeah, that's, that's another variety. Like maybe those 12 dead companions of the last hero were murdered by Night's King and then raised as zombies and then became brothers. Um, we've also been uncovering clues about potentially an other who defected from Night's King, although I think that might just be the stolen other baby. Um, and we've seen, just if you look at Cold Hands, we've seen that you can have an Ice White that's on the side of the humans and not the others. So there's definitely a possibility for something like that. Did you have anything to add? Oh, I'm just, you know, completely in, in agreement with, you know, the cold hands as as an example of where you can get kind of that undead person like a white, but for, somehow he has turned and is now on the the, for lack of a better term, the good side, the the, the other side. So that's a, that's a really good point. Archmaester Emma, also known as Storm Emma says, I have to go now. I look forward to catching up on the rest later. Having Amanda on has been awesome. Yes, it has. Thanks, Emma. Thank you, Emma. And uh, Sarah Faceforia, you had a question that I think I missed back then. Uh, if you want to repeat that, I will try to answer that. Okay, so let's see. At what point during the chain of events, this is going back to Bronn Sterry's questions, at uh, what point during the chain of events in Azor High's life do you think he brought down the moon? Well, I think that would have been at the beginning because that caused the long night and that was symbolic of him grasping for the fire of the gods. So that's pretty near the beginning. Was it likely to have been before or after he procreated with Nissa Nissa? So I think that killing Nissa Nissa was part of the sort of heinous blood rite that caused the long night. So I think that the child would have had to have been born before then and possibly even have grown up a little bit uh, before then so that they're ready to play some sort of heroic role during the long night instead of just being a baby. But we'll see, what, we'll see I guess. Um, and then uh, he says, sorry for all the questions. Nope, those are all good questions. Thank you. Here's Emilio Camacho Aris again. I told you he popped up a couple times. When you talk about the son of Night's King being rescued, it reminds me of Zeus. Yes, it does. Uh, this is something that I did not include in the essay, but people have brought up on Twitter a lot. Amanda, why don't you go ahead with that one? Oh, yes. Um, so in the story of Zeus, um, so Cronus, he um, is 
So first of all, when you look at this, the tale of Cronus, it's all very cyclic, and, and that's what a lot of these um, tales of, of gods killing each other, it's, it's all very cyclic. Baal is an excellent example of it. There's something actually called the Baal cycle, and it and it's um, how it, the seasons are regulated in the Canaanite mythology. It's very, very, it's really interesting. But um, in the Greek tale um, with Cronus, so it's a cycle, Cronus actually kills his father, and um, Cronus actually becomes very paranoid because he's worried that his son will kill him. And so he ends up consuming or eating um, all of his children. And so his wife is, you know, starting to get pretty upset um, about that whole thing. And so um, what she does is instead of giving him Zeus, because she just keeps on having to give up her children so he can eat them, she gives him a rock. And um, eventually Zeus grows up and does kill his father. Um, and so it, what, and interestingly enough, he is um, taken in by, I think it was shepherds too. So it's going back to that um, uh, shepherds with the Valerians and, and all that. And also Abel, Abel kind of was a shepherd too. So when we're looking at all that shepherd symbolism that you were talking about in, in your podcast, it kind of goes back to that. But he is taken in and he's raised and he comes up and he comes up and he grows up and he goes and he kills his father. So, um, and you know, the rest is history, king of the gods. So. And the other cool thing about that is that uh, when Zeus is taken, uh, is who, I'm sorry, is it Kronos or Uranus who's Zeus's father? Kronos. Okay, mm -hmm. so when he's taken from Kronos, he's fed by the Melii, who are the ash tree nymphs. Uh, and they, use, they feed him on the honey of the ash tree, uh, which is sort of more of a mythological sort of substance, but it's it's the food of the gods that comes from the sacred tree, essentially, and that ties into some of the weird goddess ideas that we explored. So, exactly, cool. and I wanted to add one more thing. When we're talking about Baal and Cronus, a lot of gods um, later on, um, you know, different civilizations, they get conquered, you know, different cultures, they kind of get assimilated. And that's what happens with a lot of gods. And when you look at Cronus, Cron um, Cronus was actually um, uh, an assimilation of Baal as well. So um, I oh, right. kind of was looking at a few of the um, different um, ideas with that and so and I don't want to say he's like completely assimilated because there are some you know differences there mm -hmm. but um, a lot of the cultures they, they take these gods and they assimilate in, into their own and Baal and Cronus are, are actually the most that are two, that are um, paralleled or alike and that's what scholars believe was assimilated um, Baal was assimilated into Cronus when, when the Greeks were conquering so um, anyway when you're looking at that again Zeus is killing this Baal analog you know, and, so, and it, and it yeah. should be said that the reason why there are so many uh, so much fratricide and patricide in mythology is is not it's not really the the sort of the Freudian sort of uh, psychology. It's it's really more about cycles and about eras and about deeper mm -hmm. concepts like that. Like a lot of the, for example, the summer and winter king, they kill each other to recreate the cycle of the seasons. And I exactly. think exactly and Emesh and Enten. Yes. And and many more. <laughs> so the the whole thing is like it's it's depicting nature cycles or it's depicting life cycles. Like for example, in in a sense, you know, when the old king dies, his son is basically replacing him and taking on his position and inheriting all of his stuff. So you can sort of, you know, drama that up into an actual replacement type of thing. So absolutely.
Uh, there was a couple of good comments here. Scrolling back, Tracy Revis, if Nissa Nissa and Azor High's baby was a girl and a rescuer figure who stole from the other baby, uh, her half brother, could Danny do the same for John, her nephew? Um, so, oh yeah. So if if uh, Danny rescued John, oh that's interesting. Like I said, there's. Um, you know, we, we got to have some women in here somewhere, and a lot of times the gender roles flip around in terms of archetypes, as we've seen with Arya and with John being called a man-made and stuff like that. Uh, so, and then of course, oh boy, uh, the whole symbolism of castration uh, <laughs> has to do with implying somebody who's become, you know, genderless, and the idea of dragons uh, not having a gender. There's a lot of ideas about that going on. So yes, it's possible that Danny could play a rescuer role. We'll just have to see how that shakes out. And John is her uh, is her nephew, so there is that. Uh, Chicken Lipstick says, could the Starks be pseudo-villains in our story? Not unlike the last hero uh, is a pseudo-villain, the one that started the long night. Well, some people think that. Um, yeah, so essentially, going back to Venus, Morningstar mythology, the same star is the Morningstar and the Eveningstar, meaning the bringer of night and the bringer of day are actually the same person and or the same star and i think in a song of ice and fire terms that means it was either the same person or the same family line i think it's probably more likely so that you have a son or grandson cleaning up after his father or grandfather's mistakes i think that is very likely to be what happened and so you know we've got rumors that the starks were the knight's king was a stark and then we're also it's also implied that last hero might have been a stark so yes i agree with that notion and George likes to, to flip tropes, you know, on their heads and, you know, kind of show you it like like with knights, you know, a lot of um, different sci-fi and fantasy, they show knights in a really great light. Whereas in um, our stuff, in, in our stories, they a lot of times we see knights shown in less than great light and people who aren't unable to uh, become knights like the poor women, um, you know, like the hound who just doesn't want to become a knight are actually the more honorable of, of those people. And so I think that it's very possible. There's that great quote with George R. R. Martin. He's talking about how, you know, all those tropes where the good guy, you know, wears white and the bad guy, you know, um, you know, it always wears black and he's ugly. Um, I think it's very possible that the Starks could from their origin story actually might've been the bad guys. I think that that's a great possibility. Yeah, and I talked about that in Green Zombies too. Like when I talked about cold hands, kind of seems like a guy serving a penance. It's possible he did something bad, and that's why he's cursed to, uh, you know, patrol the Deadlands forever. In what seems like kind of a boring job. Uh, let's see here. Uh, oh, I think you you'll like this one, Amanda. So Aria having fun from YouTube says I sense a tie-in somehow between Monster and Ramsey Bolton. I sort of hope I'm wrong. In any case, I'm so glad to hear your voice again. LML, you're such a wonderful, okay, just shameless flattery there. Thank you very much. Let's see. Thanks for all the amazing and clever, oh, that's more flattery. Okay, so uh, Ramsey Bolton, what do you think? Is he a stolen other baby? I mean, he's he's raised by somebody else away from his father. Uh, his father's mm -hmm. definitely a Knight's King person. So there's, mm -hmm. and he's parallel to Jon Snow in a lot of ways. So mm -hmm. I hadn't thought about it too much, but it seems like it might fit. I mean, it 
That's definitely a possibility. Um, I, I definitely see how it's hit, how it does fit in the, um, I guess, family of, of little examples that we have. I definitely can see that. And so, he poses, he poses as uh, other people too, with that whole reek thing, the first week. Exactly, with, you know, there's that cloak thing again, exactly, where he's putting on the clothes of somebody else to become another person. Exactly, so yeah, I, I definitely think that that might be a, might be a possibility. Yeah, I am. Um, good example. I have the Boltons are I have another one I've been sort of pushing off to the side. I know I need to get to them eventually, um, but I I think I've been putting them off for a particular reason. There's definitely a lot of skin changing green seer clues with Ramsey being the Lord of the Hornwood. Obviously, all the skinning that goes on. Uh, so I will eventually get to all the Bolton stuff as well. Um, but what's cool about mythical astronomy is like once you catch on to or just, I won't even say mythical astronomy, just George's symbolism. Like once you catch on to like how it works and what some of these archetypes are, you pretty much take it and run and, and write your own uh, podcast if you want to, if you've got the time. I mean, it's all pretty consistent. It's all right there. So let's see here. Uh, I might have a couple more questions. Brian Taylor. Uh, yeah, Brian Taylor, who, by the way, uh, has become my patron since he wrote me this comment a few days ago. So thanks a lot, Brian. I know George has said his ice dragon story does not take place in the same world as a song of ice and fire. Um, could he just be twisting words to throw us off? The place where winter the dragon fell turning into a pool, winter is coming. What if the heart of winter is the life essence of an elemental ice magic and these others are the aforementioned uh, and the aforementioned ice dragon are servers or avatars of this essence akin to Sauron spreading his power in Lord of the Rings. Uh, instead of an eye, we have a heart. Show me what you got. All right, so, um, and then he says, one of these days I'll throw you a few golden dragons, which he actually did since then, so thanks. And uh, so, okay, so I know that a lot of people liked the idea that the cold black pond in the Winterfell Godswood was a melted ice dragon. George has specifically shot that down. Um, so that's not a thing, even though I was totally on board that tinfoil. But the second part, the idea that the heart of winter is the source of basically the ice power and the others are simply avatars of that power. I, I, I do think something like that is going on. I do think there's a source of magic in the heart of winter. Uh, I'd like to see a big black meteor, quite frankly, just, just like a mirror to the dragon locked in ice up in the moon. I'd like to see a greasy black stone. That's why I got really excited in the show when they gave us those black obelisks surrounding the frozen weirwood tree where they made the Night's King. Um, I mean, I, I don't like to build too much off of what they show in the show, obviously, but, you know, it raised my hackles anyways. Uh, do you have anything to say about the ice dragon? Um, I know I've read the ice dragon, great story. Um, read it if you get a chance. Um, really, you know, just more classic fantasy and I, 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 I enjoyed it. But um, anyway, like you said, George has um, shot that one down. Um, I, I read that theory before and I really liked it. I really I liked that theory. I really wanted that to be like a, a dead <laughs> ice dragon and everything. But I think it, I think that he might have had the idea of it, like symbolically. When when you were talking about in your your last podcast with the with the baleful bard, um, as a possibility that you know a dragon meteor, you know, fell right there. I think the symbolism is is along the same lines. I'd love it for I honestly would love it for it to be a, a dead ice dragon, but I don't think it is. Now I do want to say that I think ice dragons do exist in a song of ice and fire. I do think the beast itself 
is a common to both universes. And I think that the Ice Dragon uh, children's tale is akin to something that Old Nan would tell because John talks about Old Nan telling stories about the Ice Dragon. So while the while the Adara herself, the protagonist of the Ice Dragon story, is not like an ancient Stark, I do think that the story of the Ice Dragon could be sort of imagined as a Westerosi folktale because we do have ice dragons in A Song of Ice and Fire. We've got several signs of them in the Shivering Sea, and they sound exactly the same as the Ice Dragon in The Ice Dragon. And then the last thing I always say about this is that ice dragons are kind of George's cool invention that he thought it's like the one fantasy thing that no one else thought of that he thought of. So I would think that he's going to use it. Um, and then, of course, everything I've shown in the RLJ episode shows that George is very fascinated with the idea of taking fiery things and inverting them into burning ice. And an ice dragon is simply the epitome of that. So I do kind of think there's a good chance we will see, um, you know, an actual ice dragon. But they're just Adara won't be riding it. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Elevated Mind. Oh, this is a great one. LML, I have a quick question. Do you think George Martin really put so much mythology into A Song of Ice and Fire? Or do you feel as though you're overanalyzing some things? It's a legit question. And in no way am I trying to say you're wrong. I just love your theories. And if George really put this much thought into his books, it's mind-blowing. To make so many connections to mythology like that is pretty amazing to me. So, I mean, obviously, you guys know my basic answer, which is yes, I do think George is actually putting all this in there. And I'm not just taking everybody for a ride, obviously. Um, but, of course, the thing that really makes me feel confident in that is people like Amanda and Ravenous Reader and a whole host of others, Blue Tiger and Melanie and everybody else on uh, Twitter and all the other forums and Reddit, that we're all doing a similar type of analysis. We've all picked up on the idea that he's using key, key phrases and symbols, that he's using reoccurring archetypes and reoccurring patterns of events. Everybody figured out that Bale the Bard and Rhaegar like, have parallels. So, you know, we're, we're just basically taking that concept and taking it further. But yeah, it's a thing. Um, it is why, it's one of the reasons why George takes five years to write a book. It's, um, what's cool is that is it, at, on one hand, it's, it's really just something that great writers do. It's not anything new to sort of use old stories and themes and, and refresh them and, and bring them into your own work. That's really just called paying homage to the past and keeping sort of the old stories alive. However, George has taken this to another level, I think, that no other fantasy author really has done. Um, and so there is something about it that is unique and groundbreaking. And that's basically the reason why I am passionate on this podcast is because I truly believe that what George has done is great and unique and I want everyone to dig in on it. And it doesn't even have to be the astronomy symbolism. It could be the food symbolism or the, uh, the potty humor symbolism. It's, there's so many lines of symbolism in the book. So Amanda, you got anything to add to that one? No, I agree, you know, wholeheartedly. I love to read the books because the, the symbolism is really packed in there. And so is the weave of the mythology, um, you know, just to, um, kind of, you know, realize and figure out, you know, just even a little thing like, you know, that Baylor the Blessed locked his daughter Danae into a, a tower because he didn't want any of his sisters having sex. And then you read a story about Baylor, um, you know, of the evil eye that locked his daughter in a tower because she didn't want, he didn't want her having sex. And then um, King Acrasius locking, you know, the, almost a mirror. Um, a, a, almost a perfect mirror myth with King Acrasius and Danae. And then you have Baylor locking his sister Dana up in a tower because 
he doesn't want her to have sex. It's, it's when you kind of start catching those those different um, lines of symbolism and mythology, it is honestly the, the most thrilling and fun thing to figure out. So um, I definitely think he's doing it and I, I see it um, pretty often in his writing. So, yeah. <laughs> so Misty, Misty in the chat says, uh, um, you know, I've got a I've got a cool theory about the writing of Winds of Winter. And I said, okay, well, hit me up on Twitter so everyone can see it. And San Rixian pipes in, yeah, just check out those 345 plus threads of extra analysis. <laughs> That's all right there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I I got I had a, a thing that said I had like 400 and some notifications <laughs> when I woke up this morning. <laughs> Which, which was actually around um, 11 o'clock this uh, 11 o'clock because I worked last night but yeah right on well I think this is about time we're just about at two hours and uh, like my voice is starting to feel like it's been two hours although I appreciate you coming on here and uh, well thank you for having me this was a lot of fun yes yeah, it's great I'm really happy with how this went I think everybody had a lot of fun in the chat looks like a lot of love for your stuff and your writing so very, very um, cool. There was one question with, I think House Thompson was asking about trees. He, he asked a couple questions about trees. I In don't know. Yeah. Um, I was hoping he was going to ask, he or she was going to um, ask again. I'm scrolling back up here. You can repeat it, House Thompson, or anybody else that saw his question. Yeah, because he, he asked a couple times in a different a couple different ways. Okay. If you're still here, House Thompson, put your question out there. I noticed uh, somebody said, um, sent oh, s Sentinel. He's talking about the Sentinel trees. And uh, yeah, I, I think maybe he saw our, our Twitter thread on that. We were talking about that. Um, so the, what was it? The um, Wayward Bride chapter, Trees as Warriors. Yeah, no, no, it's not that. Um, we were looking into the the mythology of a different tree that the sentinel tree is based on. I think, weren't the we? Evergreen. Maybe. Maybe there's there's another myth about a tree that has a person inside of it. Um, that was. Oh, um, I, I was just it. reading. Was it? It was in a musician because there's. A, I was just reading a, a Celtic myth about a, a tree with two brothers fighting over a tree with a musician in inside of it. I oh Jesus, no. Yeah, I'll tell you about it. Like, okay. finish reading it. Cool, it looks cool. pretty good, though. Yeah. All right, guys. Cool. Well, thanks for coming by, everyone. With that, I will go ahead and uh, since the sound was off when I played our special custom intro trailer, I'm going to go ahead and fire that up again for the outro. So, thanks, everybody, and I will see you next time. Lucifer and presents. The mythical astronomy of ice and fire. The bale that was promised. Live stream. With special guest, Crow Food's daughter.